Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Dear Abby, dear Abby, my fountain pen leaks. My wife hollers at me and my kids are all freaks. Every side I get up on is the wrong side of bed. If it weren't so expensive, I'd wish I were dead. Stand unhappy. That is the late, great John Prine. I, I should say, I'm Ann Landers right down the line. I mean, I'm not actually Ann Landers. I mean, you know, in terms of allegiance. I'm pretty sure. I'm so old that these things have now begun to blur in my mind. But I'm fairly certain that I interviewed one of them and that it was Dear Abby. And the reason, if in case you don't know, that my excuse, my confusion is semi-excusable is that they were identical twins um, and were kind of pretty much the whole show of advice column writing at the time. Uh, Ann Landers was alleged by her syndicate anyway to have 90 million readers. I don't know. There were like 200 million people in the whole country at the time. Anyway, so we're going to talk about advice columns today. As you can tell, all of my knowledge about advice columns is radically out of date. Uh, but fortunately, everybody else who's going to be on the show is not in that boat. And we're going to begin with Jamie Fisher, a writer and researcher with The New York Times and many other publications as well. New York Times a Magazine and their book review, The Washington Post, The London, London Review of Books. And uh, she's working on a collection of short stories. Significantly, though, she wrote in The New Yorker, New Yorker a piece called The Age of Peak Advice. It's P-E-A-K, like peak oil. Although I think Advice columnists also involve a certain amount of the other kind of peak peaking because the rest of us are basically peaking at somebody else's life, right? You're looking and going, oh, they have that happening in the house. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, all right. So, uh, Jamie Fisher, after that long rambling introduction, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I had never heard that song and it is delightful. <laughs> it's, the, it's the late, great John Prine. Um, so, um, so, make the case that we're in the age of peak advice. Oh, goodness. Um, there's just more advice than ever before on any topic you can imagine. You can get advice about fidget spinners. You can get advice about your neighbor's kombucha lab or your fears that your friend may be turning into a Jordan Peterson devotee. Um, there's actually a columnist called The Bad Advisor whose sole sort of <laughs> uh, ambit is reviewing advice from other columns. And mm. she, she estimates that she reads like 50 or 60 a day. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's really, it's, it's really a peak in terms of the kind of advice you can get, the kind of people you can get advice from, including cartoonists pretending to be dogs, um, <laughs> in the subjects that, that you can get them on. All right. I think I might like that one actually. Uh, the, um, all right. So, and you, you like the forum too. explain what you like about it. You know, it, it has this, it's it's strange because it, it has this feeling of being slightly trashy, as I think I write, to be to be interested in, in advice columns. But uh, you, you get a, a window into so many different people's lives. Um, and you also, you know, whether the columnist acknowledges it or not, you get a window into what they think and how they, they sort of um, make an argument for what the world looks like. And so I think it can tell us a lot about what society looks like on both both ends of the question. So reading your piece, 
Uh, and you, you do talk about just the, as you've just alluded to, just the multiplicity uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, of advice columns and perspectives. You know, one of the things that occurred to me with my hopelessly retro view of this whole thing is that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, in, in the day of Ann Landers, like Ann Landers was pro-choice for a lot of her career. And it was mm-hmm. kind of a big deal that she was pro-choice. And what was also very interesting about that was it didn't mean that anti-choice readers wouldn't read her. I mean, uh, one of the interesting things about having only one or two advice columns for the entire nation was that maybe people spent a little bit more time with somebody who wasn't exactly like them. Reading your piece, I'm thinking, well, now I can read an advice columnist who's just like me, which, which in a way, I, I, you could argue that it defeats the purpose a little bit. That's true. That's true. And, and when Ann Landers passed, her her longtime editor, not that her name was actually Ann no. Landers, but her longtime editor wrote of her that, um, you know, you could, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you were on or who you were, you could read Ann Landers and know what America thought, um, which isn't necessarily true and that a lot of people were left out. Mm-hmm. I guess the counter argument to, you know, you, 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 you used to be exposed to opinions you didn't necessarily agree with, but you know, maybe you didn't get um, as much diverse advice from readers back then. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there are pros and cons to both styles. But I do think that there was anyway a value in people. I mean, like, you know, Ann Linders was also into opposed to capital punishment. She was a mm-hmm. little kind of not entirely satisfactory to gay people on the subject of gay rights, although she was in favor in, in certain contexts of gay rights at a time when almost nobody else was. And, and you know, yeah. so when you when you have that happening, it, it is different. Uh, on the other hand, I also, from your piece and from reading the some of the samples that will inform the rest of our show today, I can see that there's also a real value in writing to, writing to somebody who actually understands the situation that you specifically are in. Uh, yes. and, like, I don't think Ann Landers would have known, even if she were alive today, what a kombucha lab is or why it would be an intrusion on anybody else's space. So you kind of do need that. You One of the things you write about also is that it's it's probably a little bit more of a literary form at this piece, point, and you've got certified authors like Cheryl Strayed and, for that matter, Steve Allman for, for a long time was co-writing mm-hmm. that same col- column with, uh, with Cheryl Strayed. People who made their marks—Roxanne Gay, another example—people who made their marks just as writers doing writing, then gravitating towards uh, advice column writing uh, in kind of a second wave. So I, what, what's the effect of that? What does that do? Well, if you, if you don't mind, I, there's there's something close to that that I'd like to address, sure. which is that the, the advice column used to be more of a literary form. The, before there was the first advice column in, in the 1690s, um, there was literature that was a lot like advice. Um, in Montaigne's essays, you see a lot, a lot of concern with the, the proper way for living and, and questions that he asks himself, some of some of which are, are fairly crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, Pamela, the first one of the, often accepted as one of the first, first novels novel, in the Western yeah. tradition, is an epistolary novel and it's filled with questions about etiquette and um, some questions about social climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, the the current vogue for, um, you know, self-described literary folks um, writing their own advice columns is sort of a return to form. Uh, absolutely. And I would go beyond, actually before the, the show, before the news, I was doing a little introduction and I talked about mm-hmm. just being a kid and, and even an adolescent and a young adult, uh, so I'm 66 years old. So, um, you know, the world I grew up in, advice 
about people's human lives and insights into human lives and confessional aspects to human lives. There just wasn't a huge amount of the amount of that kind of thing. And you really kind of had to go hunting for it anyway. And there was certainly no Internet or anything like that. And so I remember, in a way, Ann Landers and, and Dear Abby, I read both of them. And they were like my Tolstoy in the sense that I was finding out about life. Really, this is a kind of problem people have. Nobody told me that. My parents never told me anything about stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah, there's a sense in which literature, in the sense that it creates affinities and empathy and understanding of people who are not us, literature and advice column writing, they, they blend nicely. Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because the other the other interesting trend line that you see in the popularity of advice columns over time is that advice tends to become popular in times of crisis and relative social flexibility. Um, Like the first advice column became popular after a late 17th century coup in England. Um, In the 60s and 50s, when Dear Abby and Ann Landers were very popular, people were trying to figure out whether they should still wear girdles. (laughs) They were were trying to ascend to perhaps a level of um, polite society that their parents had never reached, or they were trying to understand what was going on with the radio. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so often we, we turn to advice or have historically to understand is this correct? How do I do this? What do people actually think? <laughs> what is the world really like? Yeah, and I would also say, and feel free to push back against this, sure. that, that <laughs> like, you know, in a way, the rise of the Letterer sisters, uh, Dear Abby and Ann Landers, you know, was it really was a post-World War II phenomenon sprawling into the 50s and 60s. And, and I, I think one of the things that was happening was that religious authority was waning, you know, I mean, not to, I the, not to the point of nothingness, but the church which which supplied clear answers to people, uh, not necessarily satisfactory answers, but clear answers. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the same uh, bite that it used to have. It didn't have the same reach that it used to have. Meanwhile, it was being supplanted, and there's a whole Philip Reef book about this, by the therapeutic model. But the therapeutic model, A, cost money, and B, wasn't embraced by everybody. I mean, it seemed like something that had come over from Vienna or something, and New York intellectuals might be more likely to do. So suddenly you had this, this thing that was secular, it was available for the price of a newspaper, uh, and you could get some answers there. I, I, I think, and I would even add that in sort of the Eisenhower 50s, people weren't quite as trapped in their existences as they might have been in the 20s or 30s. They could maybe make some choices. Maybe they could leave their husband or they could do something, you know, but they wanted to make the right choices. I, I think some of that, anyway, is a product of the, the, this, you know, the 20th century boom in advice. Oh, yes. I mean, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, this was something I explored in earlier versions of, of, of the piece. But, um, you, you know, even even the, the way that we talk about advice as being like somewhat confessional, you know, obviously, there's a parallel to the way Catholics used to used to speak to, to priests. Um, and one of the early advice columns in, in New York, which started in, in 1906 with the Jewish Daily Forward was called a Bintel Brief. And um, a scholar describing uh, the book later, a a collection um, of letters in in a book later on, said that people used to write to it like they were writing to um, their Rebbe in the old country. Um, There's, I think there's there's a lot of a, a search for spiritual guidance that gets carried over to the advice column format. So um, moving forward, yes, uh, we've mentioned Cheryl Strayed several times here, uh, a, a writer in, uh, in, in her own right in other kinds of ways, takes over 
most of the time with uh, with Steve Allman, this Dear Sugar advice column. Uh, and I think she, she's like George Foreman. I think she's like retired and come back three times or something. But, <laughs> um, but uh, let, let's listen to her talking to Rachel Martin, a host of NPR's Morning Edition, uh, about the universi- universality of problems. When we boil it down, we only have really about five or six problems. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I could take all of those letters and and divide them in, into about six buckets. And what, what, what excites me probably the most about the Dear Sugar column is that when people write to me, what, they're, what, they're, what happens is by just simple virtue of me publishing their letter, I know that thousands of people out there are saying, me too. This is how I also feel. This is what I am also up against. You know, that almost kind of bumps into that. Remember, there used to be this whole idea that there are only like six narratives in all of literature. And, and, and uh, But I was surprised to hear her say that. Are you surprised to hear her say that, that there's five or six buckets? Oh, not at all, because I got an almost identical answer about, <laughs> about the question from from Lori Gottlieb, who yeah. uh, her, who is a therapist who runs her own advice column and podcast. Um, I had asked her, you know, if, if she thought of different categories that questions fall into and she basically had infidelities. Mm. Am I normal? Please tell me I'm right about this. <laughs> How do I say this thing I need to say? Am I a bad person? And and do do I feel you know I feel hurt? Mm-hmm. Those those, are, those were some of the categories that she laid out for me. Right. <laughs> oh, my favorite was if you can validate my denial, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one actually. Um, that one seems like it's from a Roz Chast cartoon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's something there's something very universal about the kinds of questions that that we ask ourselves and that we ask advice columnists. You know, and then, and I'm going to ask um, Danny about this in the in the next segment. But then there's that whole question of there's a slightly performative aspect. Excuse me to all this. I mean, you, you sort of wonder. I like right now. I'm going through like three major life crises. They're all completely horrible. But it would never occur to me to write into for publication. You know, I mean, I'm seeing a therapist and I'm paying out of network, and it's costing me a lot of money. Uh, you know, but I, that's what I would do. And I sort of wonder what moves somebody to do this besides the fact that it's free advice. You know. This is part of what I think makes the advice column, while not while not American in origin, distinctly American in practice, there's mm. something about talking about our problems publicly that appeals to us. And in the context of the advice column, I think that for some people, their problems aren't valid until they're acknowledged in the world, until other people see them. Um, I mean, that's as, that's as close as I've, I've gotten to, to, to understanding it. And I have written two advice columns myself. Huh. Um, and I think I think part of it is getting advice, and part of it is also hoping that perhaps your problem being acknowledged and answered will help someone with the same problem. Um, sort of this mutual aid society of desperate questions. Well, I suppose there's also, I mean, and and I think it was in there in the the, the list of different kind of tropes that you were mentioning uh, that you'd been given. But there is this sort of the trope of my husband and I have agreed to abide by your decision. I, I don't know if that's still they do that as much, but that used to be a dear uh, Abby and Landers kind of thing. You know, the the two of them are having an argument about God knows what, uh, and they say she'll say at the end. My husband and I have agreed to abide by what you say. First of all, I'd love to know how many of those agree- agreements really held together once the ruling was issued. But there is that idea, right, of, okay, there it is. It's in print. I'm right. You're wrong. Yes. Yeah. The search, the search for a, a neutral arbiter. 
um, which I, I don't think has probably ever, ever been successful. No. Uh, but but I will say that I you know as someone who grew up on on Dear Abby primarily I by the time I was reading it, it I would not usually see my husband and I have decided to abide by your decision there's there's kind of a different opinion of authority there like embedded in that question that I don't I don't know if people think about it that way anymore. One of the most surprising advice columnists that you mention uh, this is something that I, I had not known and have trouble even processing is that Martin, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was an advice columnist for a while. Yes, yes. So he was a columnist for Ebony um, for some time in in the late 1950s, and um, people wrote in with questions about um, you know whether whether rock and roll was was a sin listening to it. Um, and, and he gave kind of surprising answers. Some answers are entirely what you would have expected from Martin Luther King. You know, people were writing in asking if they should pursue racial justice, um, within their church. And he would tell them to stay with the church and sting its conscience. Um, and, and other, others were a little unexpected. A, a woman was, um, being neglected by her husband and, he asked her if she nagged, perhaps, <laughs> or if she was careful with her grooming. Right. Well, uh, writing to, I mean, massive, massive, massive respect to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. for his incredible contributions to American history and to social change. I wouldn't actually ask him questions about my marriage. Um, that's true. That that aspect of it is somewhat surprising. Yeah. Um, although his answers are, are interesting. Um he, he advised at one point, man is more than a dog to be satisfied by the bones of sensory pleasure and showy materialism, you know, in the middle of a national magazine. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Left and right. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a very striking experience reading, reading through the letters, his answers. Let me ask you this. So you, you enjoy this stuff and you've written in and would you ever be an advice columnist? And, and let me also kind of just throw as a parenthetical after that. I mean, one of the things about advice columnists is there's no real set of commonly understood qualifications. There's no certification process. There isn't even really any way, I don't think, to, you know, kind of – it's like being a political pundit. You know, Bill Crystal's like wrong about everything, but it doesn't, doesn't ever – I mean, all of his predictions are not wrong. It doesn't seem – there's no real penalty for that. Uh, and I, my guess is that you could you, – you never know as an advice columnist probably even how good your advice actually turns out to be except in a very spotty anecdotal way. But, you know, my, my like, the, the electrician who's going to come and rewire your house – has to meet way more qualifications than an advice columnist does. So, so why not? Why not you? I mean, I could give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fascinating things is, I think the best advice columnists always always acknowledge that they have no no qualifications. Right. Um, I, I believe it was an episode of um, Dear Prudence where Danny said, "I know nothing about HR, which does not prevent me from making wild, sweeping claims about <laughs> HR." Um, but. Yeah, I, I think that it is harder than it seems, particularly I, I, I went on um, the Dear Prudence show a couple of years ago, and it was it was hard to come up with with answers that were both entertaining and and edifying. Mm. Um, I don't know. I guess I feel like I don't I don't have the authority to do it, even though you don't actually need authority to do it. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, we're going to have to take a break. Would you here. do it? No, I, no, I wouldn't. I, at least I don't think I would. Although when I was writing for magazines, I would do just about anything. You know, I mean, I, yes. I, I wrote all kinds of things that I was not really qualified to write about. So I, I'm sure I could have been someone, talked. If someone says it's for money. You'll... <laughs> 
That is, that is uh, you know, Samuel Johnson said, none but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I probably would have done it. But, I mean, we say there's no real qualifications. Well, there's no certification process. Ultimately, you have to have empathy. You have to have some kind of human touch. You're not going to last very long, I think, if you're – I don't think Jordan Peterson would be a very good advice columnist, although he probably is one, actually. Um, all right. Well, we have to take a break anyway. But the, we first of all, I want to recommend that people check out this article from The New Yorker by our guest, Jamie Fisher, The Age of Peak Advice. And then uh, after the break, you will meet one of those advice columnists. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. He was always flying his kite. One night I said, Benji, why ain't you out with your kite? He said, because it's raining tonight. I said, Benji, sweetie, you go right back out there. And to your kite string, tie a key. This may shock you, Benji, my boy, but that's electricity. Mm. Oh, something interesting, B. Dear Uncle George, believe me, I'm a woman who minds her own business. Whoops. But I live in a large building, and I can't help noticing what's going on in the apartment across the court from mine. You can be sure that this nice lady owns a beautiful pair of binoculars. A nice man lives there with his wife, but when he's away at work, another man comes in. Sometimes, when the drapes aren't drawn, I would see him kiss her. Should I tell the husband what's going on behind his back, or should I forget the whole thing? Signed, Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan? Well, Good Samaritan, obviously you are a nosy old witch, and I'm sure you've got warts on your nose. Oh, it's not worth it. Just send her a note telling her to mind her own business. Gently, uh, don't offend. All right. Uh, that's actually from uh, the old Alfred Hitchcock hour. It's season one, episode 30, if you need to look it up. And there's a, there's an interesting twist or turn. I, I don't think I should spoil it. Uh, but anyway, and the voice you hear, that's Gene Berry, who was like a great um, sort of television type actor for many years. All right. So um, we're talking about advice columnists today. Uh, and we are uh, lucky to have with us Danny M. Lavery, Slate's Dear Prudence. Um, it, uh, and we should say that Dear Prudence is one of those things that gets handed from 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 Prudence to Prudence, uh, co-founder of The Toast uh, and the author of Texts from Jane Eyre, The Mary, Pins- Sp- Mary Spinster, and Something That May Shock and Discredit You. Uh, Danny Lavery, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. So you get, what, over 300 letters uh, per week? Maybe just talk about how, how you make a decision about whose letter you're even going to handle. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a huge volume. As you mentioned earlier, the Dear Prudence column goes back uh, to the late 90s. So it's it's a well-established uh, machine. Mm-hmm. So when I took over, uh, they, they already had a sort of system in place where a couple of other workers at Slate monitor the various like inboxes and voicemails and so on, and then sort of uh, compile a, a pool of uh, the usually the shortest ones, because oftentimes people will include lots and lots of information such that uh, it it could take up a whole episode just to read two letters. (laughs) Um, And so I'll choose from a pool. So that that really does help because uh, at the beginning, I was trying to wade through all those things on my own and was just like drowning under a a sea of spam. Um, So I I, I think I probably at this point, I see about a hundred 
to 120 questions per week. Please bear in mind, I'm not great at estimating numbers. Okay. So I could be off a little bit in one direction or the other. Um, and then I'll usually choose ones that I can answer the quickest uh, for the live chat. And then ones that take a little more thought, I'll save for the column of the podcast. I'm being told I said your last name wrong. It's Danny Lavery, correct? You said it beautifully and interestingly. Yeah. I normally say it Lavery, uh, but I'm always here for pronouncing something new on the air for the first time. No, 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 no. You should get your name said the way you say it. <laughs> so um, otherwise, it's going to be a letter to some other advice column saying, this guy keeps pronouncing my name wrong. What should I do? So, um, so yeah, no, I mean, not, like I've read the, the column. I've read the, the letters that you do take. I don't know. Do you sort of strive for a, a certain kind of mix or, you know, as you're making that kind of discernment, what are you looking for? I do look for a mix. This is one thing where I really appreciate having a, a fabulous editor, um, my editor, Megan Weigand, um, on the column. Uh, I'm so, so grateful for her because she will periodically say, you know, hey, I, I've, I've kind of been keeping an eye in the last couple of weeks. have been really on the heavy side. Um, can we try to balance next week's episode a little bit more? Um, and so she's able to sort of remember that because the way that I get through it is usually like I throw myself sort of full full tilt into each letter and then and I, I climb out of it and I'm just like and that's gone I shake mm. it off like a dog getting out of a, a puddle um, so I have no long-term uh, sense of scale when it comes to the column <laughs> from week to week or month to month so I'm very very grateful to, to her for that because otherwise I just I would not notice it was just like oh the last 10 weeks have all been about like fatal problems and uh, everyone listening to the show is crying the um, all right. So um, if I were if I were doing your job, I think I would be very just out of pure sadism. I think I would be attracted to. I'll give you an example from your own column. So there was a guy who wrote in. I don't know if I can summarize this perfectly, but uh, he had had a problem with the woman who's now his wife, where he had been having some kind of online relationships where he was just kind of hitting on women on like WhatsApp and Instagram and uh -huh. stuff like that. And then they, I think they broke up and they got back together. Then he th thought he saw her maybe going through his phone um, like in the middle of the night. And then she'd been very cold towards him since then. And then he sort of says, well, there is, he would, she would have probably seen this thing that I wrote to a woman on Instagram, but it wasn't what she thinks it mm -hmm. is. And, you know, I mean, right away you can think this guy is so culpable in his own problem right now, but he's trying so hard to write this as like, what do I do about this crazy woman I'm stuck with? Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, different letters have varying degrees of self-awareness um, <laughs> or, or at least, you know, again, to my judgment, different yeah. levels of self-awareness. And, mm. you know, he had made, I think about seven different assumptions uh, that, that he, I don't think should have felt as, as solid uh, assuming were true as, as he clearly did. Um, but yeah, the thing that he wanted, like the question that he sort of ended was something like, you know, how do I make sure that I can bring up what annoys me about this uh, while ensuring she doesn't get to say anything that bothers her? Um, which, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be lovely if I could guarantee you a way of doing that where it's like, I'm allowed to be mad and you need to just listen. Uh, and then we'll deal with what I'm mad about and then end of discussion. You know, that raises a really interesting question, which I hadn't thought about before. But it's sort of like the question is, well, who are you working for ultimately? I mean, you work for Slate. I get that. But um, like, who are you working for? Like that guy probably assumes, well, you know, Danny's going to be working for me on this one. He's going to help me come up with a solution to this. That's, <laughs> that's not strictly the case, though, right? You are saluting some other flag out there somewhere. I, can you explain what flag it is that you do salute as you try to adjudicate these? matters. 
I, I do appreciate the metaphor because it, it makes me feel like a sort of interesting mariner. Yeah, there you um, go. Yeah, I, I wonder. I don't know if, generally speaking, what is going on in people's minds when they do write to me. I don't know whether they think of me as a sort of... I, I never have a really strong sense, unless someone says at the beginning, like, I read your column all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they're familiar with the column. I, I wonder, you know, were they aware of Dear Prudence 20 years ago? And then one day they had an issue that they kind of couldn't bring to their friends. And they just thought like, oh, I remember that column. I'll write to whoever's there now. Um, so I don't always know how familiar each letter writer might be with me or my, my archives. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I do think sometimes... Uh, writers might approach it as a sort of adjudicate this sometimes uh as a sort of like uh remote uh but friend sympathetic type of listen to me help me assess this um encourage me provide me with some feedback sometimes i think they approach it as i've already decided what i'm gonna do uh, <laughs> and for some reason i feel preemptively defensive and i just want to tell a stranger about it thank you for listening goodbye um, so there's a, there's a variety, I think, of approaches that a letter writer can take to uh, writing into an advice column, um, all of which are really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Really, but I'm really asking you about your approach. So like at some point you have to consult with your your inner angels or your I mean, at some point mm -hmm. you is it is it something that really is so um, I, I don't know, so complex, complex and layered and nuanced that you can't really sort of put it into words or do you have you know, a, a, a pole star that you sail by? Is there sort of a way in which you would sort of describe your approach to life and, and the way that it translates into advice? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that I can put it into words. Um, thank you. I just often forget questions when I start <laughs> answering them, uh, which is part of why I'm grateful to get to have a script to work off of when I record the show. Um, I, I would say generally speaking, I'll try to get a sense of the letter writer's goals and values and state of mind. And within a certain framework, I'm happy to say, okay, these are your values here. These are your goals here. They might not be mine were I in your situation, but they strike me as perfectly legitimate ones for a, a good person um, or a good enough person to, to want to follow. So I will do my best to help you achieve your goals. Sometimes I'll think these goals are fine. I can think of a few that I think might serve you better. Let me suggest them as alternatives. Um, and then occasionally, not often, but occasionally I do hear from someone where I feel quite strongly, you either don't know what your real problem is and I need to encourage you to reassess the situation or your goals are bad. And my, my hope is to get you to turn around and stop doing what you're doing. Um, I, I usually do have a fairly intuitive sense of where I'm going to land on each letter. Sometimes it, it takes me a little while to think, do I want to help this person achieve that goal or do I want to try to encourage them to turn around? And I, you know, I, I try not to do too many of those letters because I just think my ability to influence someone to completely change their course of action is fairly limited as a stranger with no way of following up with them. Um, so I, I, I try to do that sparingly, I think. You know, we this might seem like a strange place to go, but um, you know, we went through uh, the the summer of Black Lives Matter and had kind of a conversation about one of the things we wound up having a conversation about nationally. I think was we call the police too much. We call the police about everything, you know, uh, and there the police aren't necessarily trained for all kinds of things that they get called about, but nobody knows who else to call. So these you know things happen that need to be dealt with, and nobody knows what to do. So they call the police. And and I was thinking about that reading your column too, because, for example, I think it's in the same one that's with the guy with the wife looking at his phone. I think it leads off with this neighbor who, you know, takes out his penis in front of this woman and who's holding her toddler. 
or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, I think a lot of people would just go, I'm calling the cops right now. Although when you think about that, that's pr- probably is the wrong approach just in the sense that that's not anything the police are going to be able to deal with in any kind of subtle way. I mean, I was sort of thinking about that thinking, you know, maybe it's really good that people would look to you for some other way of thinking about this. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, it it is certainly true that I think um, different communities uh, experience policing in really different ways. So I, I think that certainly among like the white moneyed uh, suburban set, uh, there has often been uh, not a lot of uh, public conversation given to what are alternatives to the police. I think other communities have, in fact, given a great deal of thought to what alternatives to policing might look like and to other forms of de-escalation or, or offering social support or public help. Um, so there's a there's a wide uh, discrepancy, I think, both in terms of like expertise in knowledge and then in political power. Uh, and, and of course, you and your community might have a set of great alternatives to policing. And then if somebody else calls the police on you, uh, you know, your, your ability to um, uh, put forth those alternatives has, has been effectively removed. So, um, I, yeah, I, I think it is also one of those situations where, uh, for me at least, there are some situations where it feels fairly straightforward of, this is not necessarily the best option that you have, but it does feel like uh, a necessary evil. And um, in that particular instance, uh, you know, where this woman wanted to know, primarily, I think she was asking, did I imagine it? Because mm-hmm. she felt so horrified yeah. and it had been so jarring. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to stress to her was you, you did not imagine it. When men do this, it is often part of the pleasure is shocking someone and, and making them doubt themselves and, and watching them react in a sort of frightened, uncertain, bewildered way. Um, that level of power is, is part of the point. So, so that was my first goal was simply, you, you know what you saw, you, you did not hallucinate that, that happened. Um, that's actually part of a pattern. That's a pretty well-studied, well-known pattern when it comes to men who expose themselves to either strangers or, or people that they know only only slightly. Um, and then the sort of next question was, she wanted to know if she should tell her husband. And I thought that she should. I, I also thought she should tell her friends and talk to her other neighbors if she felt safe in so doing. Um, and then I said, you may also want to consider um, calling the police in part because this man's her next door neighbor and she may eventually need to get a restraining order. And again, I say that not thinking the police are going to ride in, handle it beautifully, and she's going to be safe, but it may be one of a number of different tactics that she has to uh, use in order to protect herself and in order to establish a paper trail. Again, if, if a neighbor starts exposing himself and masturbating in front of you and your two-year-old child, that's a pretty clear indicator that um, he will probably try to escalate again. And so I think she needs as much support and safety and a paper trail and documentation as she can possibly get her hands on. So that feels like a situation where I was prepared to say, um, you, you may decide that you need to do that. Um, but I, I, I also oftentimes hear from people who have called the police over something um, relatively trivial um, or, or in such a way that it made a uh, situation that could have been handled differently impossible to handle. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's painful. That's complicated. Last question, I guess, which is um, to what degree is this a two-way street? Do you feel as though you get advice from either from reading these stories and seeing how people attempt to cope with difficult situations? Uh, you know, just is there sort of a sense of reciprocity? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, partly because especially when I do the live chat, I do get, you know, in real time feedback yeah. from readers, sometimes because they want to add something to an answer, sometimes because they really strongly disagree with it. Sometimes I'll strongly disagree with that disagreement. Sometimes there's a, a pretty big consensus. And, and in those uh, moments, I'll either think, do I want to reassess my answer or do I want to say, I still think what I said is good, but I want to sort of uh, bring this up as I'm outnumbered here. Um, <laughs> so that does happen fairly often. But I would also say simply by virtue of reading and responding to these letters uh, so often, um, I, I do think I, I, I get a slightly broader sense of certain collective approaches to conflict or to family or to uh, friendships that, that do sort of shape my way of thinking about things. And, you know, one of the things that I think stands out to me the most is just um, there are a lot of people who are comfortable engaging in conflict with someone they don't know very well. Mm-hmm. And then the closer someone gets to you, uh, the the more difficult it can become and the less likely you are to either, you know, disagree about something important or advocate for yourself and the more likely some people are to sort of go along to get along until a situation becomes unbearable so one of the things i think i've taken away from writing this column over the last few years is um, trying to bring a little bit of that sense of like robust screening that i often do for people i'm just meeting for the first time to you know the, the friendships and the relationships in my life that mean the most to me which is to say not you know how do i start treating the people close to me like acquaintances but what are moments or ways in which I am uh, going along to get along because I think this relationship is too close, too valuable. I can't risk it with conflict rather than a little conflict is probably healthy here. There's the great moment in the the movie The Departed where Matt Damon and Vera Farmiga are lying in bed and Matt Damon says, if there's a problem here, you're going to have to talk about it because I'm Irish. I can live with anything. Um, and I think we all, we do that a lot. We, we think, oh, okay, I can live with this for you know another year. Uh, and you need somebody else to tell you. I think, no, you can't. Well, listen, I was we're not out- expecting to learn from Matt Damon today, but I, yeah. I, I'm glad that I did. Well, in a negative, he's a negative example, I think, you know, particularly in that thing. Oh, you got a phone call. I got to go anyway. Danny Lavery, I'm going to say it right this time, is Slate's Dear Prudence co-founder of The Toast and the author of Texts from Jane Eyre, The Merry Spinster, and Something That May Shock and Discredit You. Thanks for being with us, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. This is lovely. All right. And in the final segment, uh, Martin Luther King, notwithstanding, there's a way in which people of color are not often represented uh, in this whole genre or have not been represented in this whole genre, but it doesn't have to be that way. All right, we're back for our final segment, but first I have some thank yous to say, starting with Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer of this show. She's here in the uh, studios with me because I have returned to the studios. Betsy Kaplan uh, is senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this particular episode. So thanks to both of them. Uh, and we are now going to do, in fact, our final segment with Christine Pride, uh, a writer, book editor, and content consultant. Her debut novel, We Are Not Like Them, written with Joe Piazza, will be published in October and is available for pre-order now. Her advice column is entitled Race Matters on Cup of Joe, where she answers questions about race and relationships. Uh, Christine Pride, welcome to our conversation. 
Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. So explain how it is that you find yourself in this specific role of advice columnist. That's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, I've always been such an avid fanatic of advice columns and read them for years, including Dear Prudence and you know Ask Polly and on and on. Um, and that dovetailed when, you know, last summer, I and a lot of other Black Americans, obviously, were having, uh, you know, a lot of struggles with the racial unrest. And, uh, you know, it felt like it was time to harness um, the moment with this racial reckoning. Um, and so I initially wrote a piece called Five Things I Want My White Friends to Know, um, you know, that sort of outlined how I was feeling in this really intense moment. And uh, our national story. Um, and that appeared on Cup of Joe and got such a great response. And it occurred to me as someone who, like I said, was an avid advice column reader, how much, uh, you know, people of color have been kind of left out of this conversation and these platforms and how much there is to talk about and to get advice about um, using this convention. And so I proposed to Joanna Goddard, a Cup of Joe, uh, you know, this column uh, to really delve into those issues. Um, and it's been a really you know, great and enlightening experience, both for me and I think the, the community of readers that uh, you know, are fans of the column. Can we talk about that community of readers? I, I When I first heard about this, I, I guess I just in very reflexively thought, so this will be uh, a columnist, uh, a, a black advice columnist answering questions from black readers. But that's not the way it works at all, right? And quite a few of the examples that I read anyway were from white readers. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, my conception of the column is that it's for both black and white readers. I mean, race is something that affects both black and white Americans, um, and particularly the things that we need to talk about, the way that race permeates personal relationships, work, uh, you know, social interactions, uh, really everything affects both people. And so, you know, I'm really cognizant that I come to the table as, you know, sort of an empathetic human being and a Black woman, by no means, you know, an expert on race, but that I can um, sort of help bridge this divide in perspectives by answering dilemmas from both white readers and Black readers in a way that I think the letters themselves are actually very enlightening. Um, and also, hopefully, my answers are enlightening. And then the discussion that happens around them, which I think is so important, is also enlightening. Do you want to give an example of a letter that you found enlightening? Uh, you know, I think a lot, like we were talking, um, you were talking with your other guest uh, earlier, and I think this is a hallmark of advice columns um, where, you know, a lot of letters represent a lot of different people's experiences. So I really try to choose my letters accordingly. Um, and so one of the first columns I did was about, you know, can I end this friendship was the headline. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us in our uh, Trump and now post-Trump era uh, were wrestling with that that sort of dilemma of, uh, you know, with family, with friends, if you have different beliefs, viewpoints, et cetera. Um, in this case, it was a woman who um, was writing about how her friend did not believe systemic racism actually existed. Uh, this was a white woman saying that about another white friend. Um, you know, how do you bridge that divide? And so that was very specific in terms of their particular dynamic, but I think it spoke to a larger um, issue that a lot of people were, were feeling Feeling, which is, you know, how how can we, um, you know, d navigate these divisive times? 
Right. And um, I mean, I, I read that one. Uh, tell the tell our audience, though, sort of how you dealt with it. Uh, you know, I, with this letter and with all my letters, I, again, really tried to come from uh, a place of empathy. This is not a didactic column in terms of, you know, there's going to be right or wrong answers or there's, you know, even a specific course in action. So I try to really get people to think think about, uh, you know, all the factors that might be at play in making that decision um, and really, you know, try to check my bias, if you will, in terms of, you know, a gut instinct might be to say, well, oh my God, that's crazy. You know, drop this friend immediately. Um, it's always more complicated than that. Um, and so, you know, my advice for this particular woman was, you know, to have an open mind and an open heart in terms of continuing these conversations, but that she is also at the same time under no obligation morally or otherwise to continue a friendship, uh, you know, that doesn't, or any relationship for that matter, that doesn't represent her values and that that's okay in this moment, but life is also long. Um, and, you know, we need to give people time to evolve and should her friend be able to do that, you know, there might not be a reason to have a firm closed door on this friendship. Yeah, you know, I, I I like that point too. That life is long. I, I, anecdotally, I'll just say that for three of my four years in college, my roommate was a black man, uh, and but this is like 1970s. And what I do now is I call him up and I say, you know, I'm just thinking about something from 1975, and I'm starting to realize that maybe there were some things that I don't didn't get about it. He'll just start laughing uh, because you know because these things. First of all, I, I'm so, I feel so lucky to have a really long relationship like that one, but. But, you know, we do change over time, too, and maybe we get things that we didn't get before. And so I like that approach very much. One thing that I wonder is, you know, I, I talked at the beginning with Jamie Fisher about the fact that uh, because there's so many different options these days, there's kind of a self-selection process that can go on. In a way, you're probably not going to hear from people who might benefit most from your advice because they'd be unlikely to seek. Like you're not going to hear from the woman that the that your your letter writer had the problem with. She's the woman who doesn't believe in systemic racism. She's probably not going to read you or write to you. Uh, is it frustrating that in a way you're sort of talking to people who, because they've already identified themselves as people who care about these issues, they're kind of a, a choir already? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I feel like it just you have to have um, – modest expectations. You know, my goal in starting this column and, you know, writing it is not to feel like I can change society or that I'm reaching, as you said, you know, people necessarily so far outside the bubble. I think the benefit is that even people within the bubble, so to speak, um, and people interacting with the column have a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn the same way you just mentioned, you know, calling your friend and saying, uh, you know, I'm looking at this in a new perspective and you're really in the minority in terms of having a close black friend or a close friend of another race that you can have those conversations with um, and that, you know, you can feel comfortable doing so. And so I also see the column as um, a proxy in that way, that for most of us in our socially segregated society who aren't able to do that, the column is like talking to a close friend of another race um, who, you know, you can dare tread a water in these, or try to tell, I should say, in these, you know, potentially uncomfortable, fraud, scary conversations or conversations that might be, uh, you know, right for miscommunication. And so 
you know, it's a safe space, which is you know, the hallmark of a lot of, you know, advice columns, right? It's a safe space to bear your soul. <laughs> That's very well expressed. Well, we have to stop there, although I have a lot more questions. Although I have just enough time. I've, I, I've now quoted this at least 100 times on my show, but I'll quote it to you because it seems like something maybe you might even want to use at some point. What my friend often says to me, so he's black, I'm white, we're both left-handed. And he'll say, Colin, you know how when you're left-handed, you notice like a lot of things that don't work very well for left-handed people? He goes, being black is kind of like that too. He goes, the right-handed people don't notice that the you know left-handed people are disadvantaged. And being black and you know being white, it's it's kind of like that too. I always feel like that's such a great analogy. Well, that is such a great analogy. And having broken my right wrist recently, I've been a black person and a left-handed person for there the last. And so I can really uh, relate to that. Feel, feel, free to, feel free to steal it. His name is Ken Jennings, if you want to give him credit. Uh, Christine Pride, great to talk to you. Uh, Christine Pride now writing the advice column, Race Matters on Cup of Joe, where she answers questions about race and relationships. Uh, we have to go now. Thanks again to Betsy Kaplan. Thanks to Cat Pastor. Thanks to all these great guests, too. Uh, Danny Lavery uh, and Christine Pride. Uh, and, of course, Jamie Fisher, who got us started on all this. And stay with us for future shows. They're all going to be just great. That's my advice, is to keep listening to this show. Sound advice we're given. Sound advice. Just as sure as you're living. If you're smart, you'll think twice. When they start to sound off with advice. Sound advice we're given. Sound advice. Just as sure as you're living If you're smart, you'll think twice When they start to sound off with advice Don't listen to their sound advice